Hi guys, welcome to worship. It is good to see you all this morning. Thanks for uh, joining us and worshiping the Lord. Um, we are in the book of Acts, and so if you're not aware of that, uh, now is time to grab your Bibles. You're going to need them. We're going to be uh, bouncing around the book of Acts as we have been doing for the last few months. Um, this is, I was talking to somebody about this this morning. This is a very different approach for me. I am not used to doing this bounce around overview thing and it's kind of different for me, but I'm kind of liking it. I don't know whether or not you're liking it, but it doesn't really matter because I'm the one in charge. So I get to decide that. But we, we started with a, like a little mini series in Acts called the Commission, where we talked about the fact that God has called us as Christians to join him in the mission that he's in, right? And then we talked um, in this next series that we're in right now, we're kind of wrapping up, called Body Life, about what does it mean to actually be the church? What does it mean to be the body of Christ, the family of God? What does that look like in practical terms, in a practical sense? And, and how can God work in our lives when we're actually together as one? We've been talking a lot about the issue of unity, and um, that seems to not only be uh, a central theme in the book of Acts, but it's a central theme in our culture today. And so it's a uh, good timing for us to be talking about that. And so we've been bouncing around Acts and we've seen all kinds of cool stuff. So let's just quickly recap, right? We saw the coming of the Holy Spirit in Acts chapter two, right? The Holy Spirit comes and just splashes onto the church. People are filled with the Spirit. Peter stands up and preaches. Thousands of people come to know Christ in one day. They get baptized, added to the body of Christ. And the body of Christ, the church, is born that day and we begin to see what God does for them. We see miracles happening. Uh, it says over and over again in the book of Acts that many signs and wonders or many miracles were taking place at the hands of the apostles whom God had uniquely gifted to perform miracles, cast out demons, uh, heal the sick, raise the dead, all of that taking place in the book of Acts. And in our next little mini-series in Acts, we're going to be exploring the picture of the power of God in the book of Acts and how that is all manifested and what we can expect that to look like in our lives today. So that's what's coming up. But Holy Spirit comes, miracles begin to happen, the gospel is proclaimed over and over, and the gospel begins to spread, right? We saw that it spread throughout Jerusalem. We saw that it spread throughout Judea, which is the surrounding region. We saw that it even crossed over then into Samaria, and then it reached the Gentiles, and now it is spreading even among the Gentiles. As we saw last week in, uh, in Acts chapter 13, the church in Antioch sending out its best leaders to go out and bring the gospel to people who are not like them, don't live where they are, don't have anything in common with, who are dying without Jesus. And they send Paul and Barnabas to go be ministers and missionaries to them. And so the gospel is spreading. Jews, Samaritans, Gentiles, Romans. It's crossing religious lines, right? It's crossing ideological lines. It's crossing political lines. It's crossing philosophical lines. It is just crossing, blowing down barriers and breaking down walls and crossing lines everywhere. And in fact, when you see the spread of the gospel, the rampant spread of the gospel in the book of Acts, you might get the idea that the gospel is almost impossible to contain. 
In fact, if you didn't know better from personal experience, you could get the crazy idea that the message of the gospel, empowered by the Spirit of God, manifested through the people of God, is so life-changing that the whole world would come to know Christ in a rather short time. That Jesus' mission, the co-mission that he invited us on, where we go and make disciples of all nations, would happen, and it would happen quickly, based on the spread of the gospel in the book of Acts. And you might think that that's how the gospel spreads. You might think that that's the kind of power that the gospel has, you might get the idea that the Holy Spirit is actually so powerful that he transforms lives one life at a time and transforms the world. You might get that idea if it wasn't for your personal experience. If it wasn't for the fact that you and I, most of us, so those of us in this room and some, some of us online, are American Christians in the 21st century, where that doesn't seem to be the picture that we see of how the church grows. That doesn't seem to be our experience that the power of God combined with the gospel in the people of God spreads like wildfire in a way that is uncontainable. In fact, what we see is something very, very different. In our culture today, and I'm speaking particularly of Western Christianity, um, American Christianity to be specific, um, people have a lot of religious choices these days, right? There's a lot of options out there for people who have any religious interests whatsoever. So I want us to do an exercise together today. Many of you, most of you are sitting next to somebody if you're in this room, if you're at home and you're with someone in your living room, or uh, if you're all by yourself, uh, you don't have to talk to anybody because people will think you're weird. But um, here's what I want you to do. We're just gonna take like 10, 15 seconds for this. So just don't sit here and look silly. Just do what I'm asking you to do. Here's what we're gonna do. I want to ask you a question. I want you to turn to someone sitting next to you and tell them what you think the answer might be, okay? And nobody's gonna shout it out. Just tell the person next to you. Here's the question. What do you think among all those options what do you think is the fastest growing religious classification in America today? You, you have you know, Catholic, Protestant, Muslim, uh, Buddhist, Hindu, Jewish, Mormon, Jehovah's Witness, all that. What do you think is the fastest growing classification of religious people today? Tell the person next to you. And if you're home, write it down. We'll see if you're right. Okay, you should be hearing the Jeopardy music in your head. The countdown is happening now. So this might interest you. The fastest growing religious classification in America today is also the largest religious classification in America today. So that might throw some of you off. All of the research, and it doesn't matter who's done the research, all of the research in recent years um, bring us to the same answer to this question. And the race isn't even close. Fastest growing religious classification in America today, and for the last two decades, has been nuns. <laughs> now, now don't picture a little lady in a black thing in a habit, not N-U-N, 
N-O-N-E, nuns. So that if I give you a, um, a survey and ask you to check a box which one best identifies your religious conviction, and it says Muslim, Baptist, Catholic, Jehovah's Witness, and all this list of religions, and at the bottom is none, the fastest growing classification is none, and as of last year, the nuns passed the Catholics for the largest religious classification in America today. There are more people who say that they have absolutely no religious affiliation, absolutely no religious connection, absolutely no connection to anything supernatural than there are people who claim any other religious group. Some 25% of Americans now say they have no religious affiliation, no religious convictions, no one and nothing that they claim to worship. And beyond that, they go so far as to say that not only do they have no convictions about this, they're not even interested in talking about it. They're not even interested in learning about it. A recent LifeWay research poll conducted among random people, adults, 46% of those questioned said this, I never wonder whether I will go to heaven. The, the question of heaven, they said, never even crosses my mind. I'm busy in this life, I'm busy in this world, I'm doing my thing, not really interested in spiritual things, they're saying, and I don't even really ask the question, gee, I wonder what happens after you die. 46% of those polled said that. So it's not just that people are searching for spiritual answers and not able to find them. It's that they're not even asking the questions. That a large percentage of American adults are saying they're not even thinking about spiritual things. They literally don't care. Such is the impact of the 21st century American church. Man, I don't know. <laughs> I don't know how that makes you feel. I'm assuming that if you're in this room or, or watching this online, that the vast majority of us consider ourselves part of the American church, right? So if we are part of the American church and the American church is missing the boat to this degree, then we have to own that. So I, I'm sorry to be so unkind. I'm sorry to just be so blunt. I'm sorry to be so direct. But let's be honest, Christians. Uh, in our lifetimes, we have watched our culture in, in the United States move not further toward God, but further away from God. That's what's happening. How does that compare to the church in the book of Acts? So we're gonna, we're gonna go back. By now, you guys should have this passage memorized. Go to Acts chapter two. Seems like every week or every other week in this study of Acts, I'm beginning with this passage, but it lays foundation for everything that, excuse me, that we read in the book of Acts. Acts chapter two, beginning in verse 41. Some of you don't even have to look it up. You've heard it read so many times. Here we go. Acts 2, 41. So then... 
Those who had received his word were baptized. And that day there were added about 3,000 souls. They were continually devoting themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship, to the breaking of bread, and to prayer. Everyone kept feeling a sense of awe, and many wonders and signs were taking place through the apostles. And all those who had believed were together and had all things in common, and they began selling their property and possessions, and were sharing them with all as anyone might have need, day by day, continuing with one mind in the temple and breaking bread from house to house. They were taking their meals together with gladness and sincerity of heart, praising God and having favor with all the people." And the Lord was adding to their number day by day those who were being saved. Verse 47 is so significant. We've been talking um, for weeks about what it means to be the body of Christ and what it looks like to be continually devoting ourselves to things like fellowship and the apostles' teaching and the breaking of bread and prayer and all of that kind of stuff. But... I want us to emphasize here verse 47 that brings it all together and says what happens in a church that lives like that. It says they're praising God and having favor with all the people. That's worth underlining. The church in the book of Acts, these are weird people. These are counterculture people. These are people who are a part of what everyone considers to be a new cult. And yet, this crazy cult of Jesus followers is finding favor with all the people to the degree that the Lord is adding to their number day by day those who are being saved. There are um, a lot of good, healthy, growing American churches. But the American church as a whole is shrinking. I think that's pretty well known. As a percentage of the population, the Christian church in America has literally never been smaller than it is today. That should shake us up. Because Jesus said, you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and even to the remotest parts of the earth. Because Jesus said that we're to go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And the idea that we get when we read the book of Acts is that the power of the Holy Spirit, the message of the gospel, and the changed lives of believers adds up to this amazing picture where the gospel spreads like wildfire and people come to be followers of Jesus. And we live in a time and place when the church is smaller as a percentage of the um, population than it has ever been in the country that we live in. In other words, on our watch, this is happening. Now, if at this point you're feeling a little bit um, chastised, you feel like I'm being a little rough on you, let me just say that probably this is a message I should be preaching to a room full of pastors. Because, Because we shepherds have been leading the church during this season. And And so when I look at these statistics and I look at the reality and I look at the experience of my life in ministry and I I look at church history and I read the book of Acts, I am chagrined and I say, wow, Lord, where am I missing something here? 
So please understand, I'm not here wagging a finger at you. I guess God is wagging a finger at us. But we do need to at least be honest about what's going on. As a percentage of the population, um, the church is a smaller percentage of America than ever before. 25% of American adults and 33% of those under the age of 30 now identify as nuns. So what was it about the church in the first century that was so different from our church in the 21st century? Now, let's look again at uh, verses 44 through 47 here. We're still in Acts chapter 2. And all those who had believed, because so I asked the question, what was so different, right? So let's see if we can figure it out. All those who had believed were together. They had all things in common. They began selling their property and possessions, were sharing with them uh, with all as anyone might have need. Day by day, continuing with one mind in the temple, breaking bread from house to house, they were taking their meals together with gladness and sincerity of heart, praising God, having favor with all the people. And the Lord was adding to their number day by day those who were being saved. Do you see the picture of unity there? I know you're probably getting bored as I'm preaching through this Body Life series because, man, he just keeps talking about unity. But I'm just going to tell you, church, there's been nothing that has concerned me more in the past couple of years as I view the American church, Grace Fellowship, and every other Bible-believing church and the universal church in the United States. There has been nothing that has concerned me more than the fact that there is such a lack of unity among God's people. And so we need to be shown a biblical example, and we need to begin to uh, emulate that biblical example. So unity, or in our case, disunity, seems to be the issue. And I don't want to beat a, a dead horse. It's well established that um, unity is sort of the last word that comes to someone's mind outside the church when you ask them to describe Christians. I Googled this. This is so fascinating. This Google, I, I used to actually have to read books and look stuff up. Now I just Google stuff and believe whatever they tell me. Anyways, I, I Googled this. I wondered, just think about um, Baptists, right? We've all heard there's a lot of different types of Baptists. And I thought, I wonder how many types of Baptists there are in America. When you get home, Google this, you'll find out I'm not lying to you. The first article I found to um, answer that question when I Googled this uh, listed 61 major Baptist groups. 61 major Baptist denominations. And here's the list. Alliance of Baptists, American Baptist Association, American Baptist Churches USA, Association of Reformed Baptist Churches of America, Association of Welcoming and Affirming Baptists, I like that instead of the mean and hateful Baptists, um, <laughs> Baptist Bible Fellowship International, Baptist Missionary Association of America, Central Baptist Association, Christian Unity Baptist Association, Conservative Baptist Association of America, Continental Baptist Churches, Converge, Cooperative Baptist Fellowship, Enterprise Association of Regular Baptists, I don't know what irregular Baptists are, um, 
uh, the Gospel Baptist, uh, excuse me, Full Gospel Baptist Church Fellowship, Fundamental Baptist Fellowship Association, Fundamental Baptist Fellowship of America, General Association of Baptists, we're just to the G's, General Association of General Baptists, <laughs> General Association of Regular Baptist Churches, General Conference of the Evangelical Baptist Church Incorporated, General Six Principal Baptists. I have no idea what the six principles are, but they are committed to them. Independent Baptist Church of America, Independent Baptist Fellowship International, Independent Baptist Fellowship of North America, Independent Free Will Baptist. In case you didn't get independent, it's also free will, in case you don't understand. Uh, Institutional Missionary Baptist Conference of America, Interstate and Foreign Landmark Missionary Baptist Association, Landmark Baptist, Liberty Baptist Fellowship, National Association of Free Will Baptists, National Baptist Convention of America, National Baptist Convention USA, National Baptist Evangelical Life and Soul Saving Assembly of the USA. National Missionary Baptist Convention of America, National Primitive Baptist Convention. Don't ask me. The, the New Testament Association of Independent Baptist Churches, North American Baptist Conference, Old Line Primitive Baptist, German Baptist Churches in America, Old Missionary Baptist for old missionaries. Um, old regular Baptist, because you know you have to be regular if you're irregular. Anyways, uh, original free will Baptist convention, Pentecostal free will Baptist church, primitive Baptist universalist, primitive Baptist, progressive national Baptist convention, progressive primitive Baptist, <laughs> progressive and primitive, um, reformed Baptist, regular Baptist, separate Baptist, separate Baptists in Christ, Seventh-day Baptist General Conference, Southern Baptist Convention, South Wide, South Wide Baptist Fellowship, Sovereign Grace Baptist, Strict Baptist, just in case anybody didn't know, um, Two Seed in the Spirit Predestinarian Baptist. That's a denomination. United American Free Will Baptist Church, United American Free Will Baptist Conference, United Baptist and World Baptist Fellowship. Those are the major Baptist denominations in America alone. Just Baptist. Don't get me started on Presbyterians, Methodists, Lutherans, and Episcopalians and the rest. If you're outside of the church looking in and trying to think about what Christianity means and what it is to be a disciple of Christ, how does a list like that make you feel? Is unity the word that comes to your mind? But the problem extends beyond local churches. We're not united with one another in local churches. It's not just the local churches are not united with one another. It's that so many, even within local churches, are not united with one another. Now, I'm going to just get away from my notes here, take a second, and just comment on this. Because I got to tell you, if you're like, pick this up, and you're watching this in an airport somewhere going, oh, I, I was looking for... Um, Grace Chocolates, and I found Grace Fellowship. Well, congratulations, welcome. Uh, I want to tell you about Grace Fellowship. Um, I have now been here 32 years, and we have never once had a significant division in our church of any kind. 
So if, if you've been in this church for a long period of time, um, I just want you to know, not all churches are like this. Um, and, and, and I don't say that in a way to say, isn't Grace Fellowship great? We are a flawed church just like every other church. What I'm saying, though, is that those of you who have been here a long time, I'm looking out at some faces of people I've been seeing for decades. If you've been in this church a long time, you don't realize what it is like in some other churches. <laughs> and, the, and the backbiting that goes on and the, the business meetings and the uh, committees and the the fighting and the political maneuvering and all of the kind of stuff that has unfortunately become fairly commonplace. It should be this very unusual thing when you hear about a church that split because they got into an argument over some fine line in doctrine or a church that um, split because they liked one pastor better than the other one or a church that split because they had the audacity to put drums on the platform or a church that split because uh, the, uh, certain key um, power brokers in the church were not a part of the decision of what color chairs we were gonna put in the worship center and on and on it goes. And those who are outside looking in, they see that. So it's been an incredible blessing for me and my family to be a part of this church for over three decades and just go, wow, what an amazing gift God has given us in that we haven't experienced that sort of thing. And by the way, if you're here today and you're thinking, well, I can lead the charge, <laughs> then I, I, I'm just so glad you're here don't ever come back. <laughs> um, so church splits, gossip, people that leave for shallow reasons, um, consumerism in the church, where it's about who's got the most to offer me and I bounce from this church to that church and this church and that church because this one's offering this program and that one's offering that. <sighs> That's bad news. The good news is this, it doesn't have to be that way. Let's skip ahead to Acts chapter five. In Acts chapter five, we see this little passage. You know, and if you haven't read the book of Acts, in Acts chapter five, verses one through 11, it's a fascinating story about how God kills these two people, uh, Ananias and Sapphira, and, and I'll save that message for a week when I'm preaching on giving, but you might wanna read that. But, <laughs> Anyways, um, <laughs> we're going to pick it up after that story, but, but that's the context, right? These two people have just literally been struck dead by God because they lied to God and to the church, okay? Don't ever let some preacher tell you it's because they didn't give enough money. That's not why they were struck dead. They, they lied to God. They lied to the church. They made it about themselves, and God made an example of them. And so that's a scary story. And if you were in the church at that time, you, it would have gotten your attention. And if you were outside the church at that time and you heard about it and your friend was inviting you to our nice new church, you would say, no, thank you, right? That's the context that we pick it up. Acts chapter five, verse 12. At the hands of the apostles, many signs and wonders were taking place among the people. This sounds familiar. And they were all with one accord, that sounds familiar, in Solomon's portico. But none of the rest dared to associate with them. So 
So this happens to Ananias and Sapphira and people outside the church will not dare to associate with them because they've heard about God's wrath, right? None of the rest dared to associate with them. However, the people held them in high esteem. That's interesting. I don't want to come. <laughs> I don't want to be a part of it because if God killed them, what might God do to me? But, but that being said, you people impress me. The pe- they, they were held in high esteem. And then verse 14 says this, and all the more believers in the Lord, multitudes of men and women were constantly added to their number. In a time when God was manifesting his power in such a way that it scared people away from even associating with the church, they still met Christians whose lives had been so transformed by the Holy Spirit that they could not resist the gospel and multitudes were being added to their number day by day. This is not just a repeat of Acts chapter two, this is quite a ways down the road and it's still happening. Every day, they're held in high esteem by the people, and the Lord is adding to their number day by day. That's what those two passages have in common. There's two things, really. The Acts 2 passage and the Acts 5 passage that we just read. Um, One, and this is the answer to a great trivia question. What kind of car did the apostles drive? It says they were all in one accord. I should have saved that for dad joke day, huh? Sorry. It says they were all in one accord, you guys. They, they, that word one accord, the Greek word translated there is a very rich word. It means that they had the same mindset, the same vision, the same mission, the same purpose. They had the same ideals. They had the same goals. They were on the same page. That's what those two um, passages have in common. And then there's always this. The people held Christians in high esteem. And God was adding to their number day by day those who were being saved. There is something to be connected there. That when we are in one accord and the Holy Spirit is allowed to do what he wants to do in our personal lives, in our collective life as a church, people see that and they are drawn to it and the Lord adds to the number of the church day by day. That is to say that those outside the church had a very high view of those inside the church, just like today. Anybody listening? People who didn't know Christ were watching the people who did know Christ and they were observing their changed lives. Their transformed lives backed up their message of the gospel of a life-changing God. Remember the the blind man that Jesus heals in the book of John? Um, The one where Jesus spit in his eyes? I don't know what you would do if someone spit in your eye, but this guy got healed. And and then um, everybody was mad because uh, the, the Pharisees didn't like Jesus doing this healing, and they start to question the guy, and they're like, how, how could this guy have healed you? He's just a sinner. And the guy says, I do not know whether he's a sinner. I just know this. I was blind, and now I see. That's hard to argue with, you guys. That, that, if you didn't pick up on this, like, 
that's actually, uh, I guess the Bible was quoting the song Amazing Grace there, <laughs> right? I once was blind, but now I see, as John Newton wrote famously in the hymn Amazing Grace, John Newton, the slave trader who became a follower of Christ and found out what it was to actually be redeemed and transformed and to live a new life in Christ, the slave trader who became a pastor, who became the writer of the greatest English language hymn of our time, John Newton said, I once was blind, but now I see. And when you look at a guy who once made his living by selling human beings and you see him and now he is a man who doesn't even care about his living but is building up the lives of human beings you go wow there's something going on here when he was blind but now he sees that's hard to argue with it's hard to argue with the demon possessed man who came running at Jesus out of the tombstones right he had been filled with a legion of demons and that's all anyone knew him as as the man of the tombs who was demon possessed and Jesus cast those demons out of him and he was restored and in his right mind and he went back to his hometown and he told the people Jesus did this for me and they believed him because they knew him before and they saw him now. Or, or Matthew, the tax collector, Zacchaeus, the tax collector, these men whose friends all came to know Christ because they saw what God did changing the life of a thief and turning him in to a man of God. Or for last example, how about Lazarus? The thing with Lazarus is he was dead. Like dead, in the tomb, buried, dead. And when they talked about rolling the stone away in the King James Version, it said, don't do that because by now he stinketh. <laughs> and the one who stinketh came forth out of the tomb alive and well and when you meet a man who once was blind but now he can see, it's convincing. When you meet a man who once was a thief but now lives to give, it's convincing. But when you meet a man who once was dead and now he's alive, you can't argue with that. And guys, if you're a Christian, well, I won't speak for you, let me speak for me. I'll just tell you the flat out truth. I once was dead and now I'm alive. The people who knew me before I knew Christ and then got to know me after God did a transforming work in my life were astonished and astounded. So many of my high school classmates came to know Christ because of my friendship with them, because of what God was doing, don't misunderstand me, because they saw who I was and they saw who I was becoming. I was the first Christian in my family and before long, every person in my household was following Jesus. When a life gets transformed, that's hard to argue with. But whether it's fair or not, the number one response when a person outside of the Christian church is asked to describe Christians, the number one word that is used? Hypocrite. hypocrite. Now, I'm not saying that's fair. I'm not saying that that, that label fits all of us. I'm saying that it's almost universal outside the doors of church buildings. And so somehow, our reputation, Christians, somehow our reputation outside of the church is not like that of the early church. And by the way, neither is our impact, which I illustrated at the beginning of the message. Let me show you one more example. 
of how it can be. Turn to Acts chapter 6. Acts chapter 6, beginning in verse 1. Now at this time, while the disciples were increasing in number, a complaint arose on the part of the Hellenistic Jews against the native Hebrews because their widows were being overlooked in the daily serving of food. I talked about this a couple weeks ago. I won't go back over it. So the 12 summoned the congregation, the disciples, and said, it is not desirable for us to neglect the word of God in order to serve tables. Therefore, brethren, select from among you seven men of good reputation, full of the spirit and of wisdom, whom we may put in charge of this task, but we will devote ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the word. The statement found approval with the whole congregation, and they chose Stephen, a man full of faith and of the Holy Spirit, Philip, Procurus, Nicanor, Timon, uh, Parmenas, and Nicholas, a proselyte from Antioch, all Greeks. And these they brought before the apostles, and after praying, they laid their hands on them. And the word of God kept spreading, and the number of the disciples continued to increase greatly in Jerusalem, and a great many of, these, of the priests were becoming obedient to the faith. Now, I've talked too long. I don't have time to expand on this very long. Just give me a second. We looked at this a couple weeks ago. There was this racial divide in the church and the Greek uh, widows were not being cared for. So what did they do? The apostles gave power and authority to a group of Greek men and said, you have the, you have the authority to make these decisions. Take care of the needs of these people. And when that happened, the, the watching... Uh, um, populace on the outside of the church looked and saw this happening. Racial tension. Racial divide in the church. And they saw how the leaders handled this. Guys, here's the problem. This is the problem in the world. It's been the problem since all of human history. People who have power abuse those who have less power. I, don't make it about race or, or gender or ideology or political party or anything. Doesn't matter. Throughout all of history, whoever has the power keeps the power and they subdue those who don't have the power. It's called the fall. It's called sinfulness. It's called selfishness. It's what people do apart from Christ. The apostles, the men in the church with the power, all Jews, heard about a problem with the ones who don't have any power, Greek widows, and they gave away the power to those who had no power in order to lift them up. People don't see this. And when they saw it, the scripture says, even the priests, the Pharisees, the people who crucified Jesus, the priests in huge numbers were coming to know Jesus. Wow. And, and, and what sort of unifying things brought them together? We don't have time to look this up. You can write it down in your notes. John chapter 13, verses 34 and 35, it's a well-known passage. Jesus says essentially this to his disciples. They will know you are my disciples by your what? Love for one another. They'll know. You, you can, you can stay.
study doctrine. You can uh, get a better sound system so you can preach loud from the street corners. You can master online ministry so people all over the world get to hear the gospel. But how will they know your disciples of Jesus? By your love. The love for Christ translates into a love for one another, which translates into a love for lost people. And God called them to reach those lost people. Their changed lives preached a message louder than the message coming out of their mouths. They broke down barriers. They showed mercy to those who were in need. They, they were empowered by the Holy Spirit. They taught and lived out the word of God. Such were the characteristics of the world-changing first century church. We are still the body of Christ. We're still the family of God. We have the same Holy Spirit as the people in Acts. We have the same gospel message. But do we have the transformed lives? Do we have the kind of love and unity that marked the early church? Are we using our resources to lift up others or to subdue them? Do we fight for our own preferences or do we love others more than we love ourselves? It's a great privilege to be a part of the family of God. And as I said earlier, I think it's a great privilege to be a part of Grace Fellowship. But that being said, God wants to change the world through us because with great privilege comes great responsibility. Same Holy Spirit, same gospel, same mission. I guess the only variable is us. Oh God, change me. Change the world through the church and begin with me. We as a representative body of Christ a flawed local congregation filled with flawed people led by flawed leaders, nevertheless so long to be a church that lives for your glory so that when people see our good works, they will glorify our Father who's in heaven. Help us, God. Whatever bits of me that still remain, wash it away so that only you shine through. And do that for us collectively. Let us here in the San Gabriel Valley be a sign to a watching world that Jesus is real, the love of God is profound and our lives can be transformed, that we who are dead can be made alive in Christ. All across our nation and across the oceans, God, may your Holy Spirit wash from life to life that the world might know that you are God, that people might be set free from sin, and that you might receive the glory you so richly deserve. This is our prayer, Lord. We look at the first century church, make us like them. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.